0: All right, so today, we have one of the 11th hours that I'm most excited about. They've all been amazing, but this one, I specially brought in Stephanie from Chicago, lured her in here, even though she just got married three days ago. So congratulations, Stephanie and Richard, who's up over there. Um, And then I think they have to go on a honeymoon with all their parents. So also (laughs) Uh, so Stephanie's going to talk to us today from her immense background in handmade books and small press publishing, and she's um, doing a PhD in this at the University of Chicago. Everybody's so excited about her project there. We can't wait till it comes out and we get actually read all of her amazing knowledge on this subject. She's also a fantastic poet and a publisher herself. Stephanie Anderson is the author of the forthcoming very soon, in the key of those who can no longer organize their environments, a book of poems, and four chapbooks. She lives in Chicago where she edits the MicroPress Projective Industries. Please welcome Stephanie Anderson. Hi
1: everyone. Is that okay? Can you hear me? Cool. I have all these kind of gadgets up here. How's your festival going? I'm going to read from two things. Um, the first piece is a kind of a lyric essay. I call it a fictive essay. Um, and the tentative title is The Afterlives of Making. And it, it's me kind of trying to think through how I came to make books and what appealed to me about making books. Um, and that should take about 10 minutes. And then I'm going to read um, an essay on contemporary chapbook publication. So this is The Afterlifes of Making. Thanks, Mary, for inviting me. First was music, music was first. It was always there in the air, at dinner, at night. There were pillow speakers, there were practice charts. The charts you filled in, coloring the stones of castles, placing star grids in a perfect alignment, finger charts, foot charts, points for practice, spitting rice, these accomplishments, group performances and matching vests. This is not to negate those things, what they meant. But you couldn't hold music, an early memory, a piano melody through sleep, She stealths into the next room, touches the shoulder of her mother. I want to hear it again, please. But sweetheart, I can't. It was on the radio. She wanted to be an astronaut. Objects promised a different way of touching the world than music did. Music was an unending process. There were practice charts, perfection and endpoint that retreats in distance. You filled in one chart and a whole blank sheaf waited underneath, whereas objects could make you safe. Almost as early as music, there were collections, hoarding stones as evidence of a walk of a world. It should be no surprise that she was a sickly child. She took to crafting minutia. Her fingers must have been small and swift, firefly on the flute with the curved head joint, a dollhouse built with her father, Something inside of her was too breakable, too transparent, and everyone knew it. She kept trying to mend it, but it was always there in the air, at dinner, at night. Words like self-esteem, games to improve it. You're the space cadet, well, you're the space commander. A recurring dream where she loses a barrette, turns to look, and loses her mother. Thus, the magic of logic. Losing objects leads to cracking, greater loss. The high-pitched panic in the air, at dinner, at night. Thus, the logic of magic. If she sleeps on her side, she won't have bad dreams. If she hems her sleep with stuffed animals, with pillows, she can make herself safe. She wanted to be a detective, In the fourth-grade talent show, playing Somewhere Over the Rainbow, performing suddenly got hard. This was a new sensation, this excruciation, the high-pitched panic in the air, the knees shook, the hands sweated. This was not fair, or was it? The fault must be internal, the magic of logic, the cracking must be controlled. Performance was no longer an end. It could not be a perfection. It involved the volatile body, the staged body, the body violated by the gaze, the body shared. Objects you didn't have to share. They were for the self. There were pebbles a toddler put into a bucket, pebbles put in pockets. There were coin collections. There were secret pine needles stashed in jars. She could care for them, and they wouldn't crack. And if they did, it was her fault line. She negotiated attachment. Collecting and crafting minutia. Making could be gathering small objects into larger objects. You still needed to preserve the small. Many stuffed animals were not the same as a large one. She beaded elaborate earrings she painted a small ocean on a white canvas she crocheted she curled pieces of paper into quilling perfection an endpoint you could touch and books books made story an object the worlds you didn't have to share in the air at dinner at night bookshelves built with her father she wanted to be a writer Writing was collecting, crafting stories to create a world for the cracking, to control it, to keep the small parts collected, stories for her little brothers written on long car rides, now stories shared to keep them safe. She grew, she discovered poems. They were both larger and smaller than stories. The poem was an object for the self. It was a collection of minutia, journals filled, journals tucked in bags. She collected the objects into yearly handmade anthologies, the book as evidence of a competence, the book shared. She grew up. She went to a city and fell in love. The poem was an object for the music. Her beloved also collected and crafted. Detritus was sculpture held by long fingers. The body shared, the body became object. Tripping, becoming part of the pattern on the couch, He made her a hollow book for holding so his leaving left her hollow. Other people were not objects. Other people couldn't be kept safe. Poems were not objects. They were hit by trains. They had just wanted it to be beautiful all the time. They hung in closets. They blew out their brains. She grew up. She went to another city to keep the stories safe, to make them stories again. She became a writer. She could care for words and they wouldn't crack. The logic of magic, the poem could be music in the air at dinner at night. She was hemmed by poets. They just wanted it to be beautiful all the time. There were readings, there were rooftops. They said when you introduce a gun to the scene, it must go off. They were lucky, they made stories fueled by drink. They gathered close their objects. She could not please all her readers. The poem was not a perfection. There were reading, sorry, nor was publishing, crafted but imperfect. The magic of logic, if she she sends a group of poems, five poems to five magazines, if there are a thousand manuscript submissions, the logic of magic, a chapbook, a beloved had one too. She returned to the other city, her beloved to a city further still, the logic of magic, a press keeps love safe. Shiny paper, pamphlet stitching on the cape, when alone in the air at dinner at night. She wanted to be a publisher. She hemmed the books. She watched bad TV. She moved between the cities, reading theory. PhD school pitched panic in the air at dinner at night. Agamben, Derrida, Lukacs Writers were objects She could not write, but she could make Cutting paper five sheets at a time at the dining room table Love cracked, the fault line internal She gambled with attachment She made bets She found others who crafted books to keep them safe She hoarded text and cut it up She crafted There was a friend to help them too Books made narrative an object there was a magazine and paper there was collaboration the book shared she wanted to be an editor she delegated and scrawled she scanned poems in the air at dinner at night she grew up and fell in love a platen press at the dining room table polymer plates a cat stepped in the ink the stories start to overlap monotyping broadsides matrimony party invitations on library cards. She wanted to be a teacher. There were others excited about books made in dining rooms, about a century of small press. Students found objects in the archives, making paper into story, the paper shared. White gloves. She hemmed the objects. There were field trips to a collective press. There was collaboration, stab-bound. Objects loosened their hold. The magic of logic, the cracking, could be creative. Why was she trying to keep things safe? She wanted to be a writer. Grandma rips the matrimony card and writes, What a mess. What a glorious fault line. She was hemmed by love. The music and the object, the performance read. There was a story started on a car ride for the self. Finger charts, foot charts, these accomplishments. Publishing is not a perfection, nor is, you know the rest, the logic of magic, a piano melody through sleep, the world we share. In the air, at dinner, at night, the secret pine needles stashed in books, stitched at the the dining room table. That's the end of the first piece. Now I'm putting on my academic hat, sort of, my sort of academic hat, and this is an essay on contemporary chapbook publication. It focuses on poetry chapbooks, but um, prose writers, there's stuff to talk about um, with prose as well, so we can chat afterwards if you would like. Um, I have some caveats. I fear the essay might be a little dry, so hang in there with me. There are six sections, so if you need to keep track, you can tick them off. Um, And the essay is only sort of contemporary because the interviews, um, I quote, in it were conducted in 2008 and 2009. And some of, actually a fair number of the publishers, I quote, are no longer publishing, which is an interesting phenomenon. And I'd be happy to talk about that more afterwards as well, the kind of temporality of being a a publisher. So this will be um, between 30 and 40 minutes. It's called Units of Measure, Contemporary Chapbook Publication. Part One, Introduction, Publishing the News. Uh, This is my summary of chapbooks and small presses. During modernism, the avenue of publication certainly influenced the form of the book and the reader's relationship with it. As I began to read about this subject, I was surprised to discover that small press publication avenues chosen by or forced upon Eliot Pound and most famously, Joyce, were quite small, in fact. Richard, will you hold up one of the Joyce pamphlets, maybe? This is a, it's a reprint. It's not an original. But this is a Shakespeare and Company reprint of some poems Joyce penned in, what's it say, 1927? Small press publication not only allowed Joyce the liberty of revising and adding to Ulysses almost unceasingly, he made his editor totally mad, but also contributed to the ways in which the public perceived the book. So we got it in the States over here on installment in kind of um, these smuggled in yellow paperback versions because it was censored. This was a strange cohesion or even a collision given the ways in which I had grown accustomed to interpreting the acts of writing, reading, and publishing as distinct and individually rigid processes. The exploration of this cohesion opens up a lot of questions because chapbooks developed in the Renaissance as a form of ephemera used to distribute political tracts, nursery rhymes, and other material, thinking about them and small press publishing in general often leads to questions about the durability of the small press model and its relationship or subordination to the publications of larger presses. In a secret location on the Lower East Side, Lynn Heginian mentions wanting the reader to see her Tumba press chapbooks as news or pamphlets. This form influences the reader's perception of the printed material, While invoking a historical connection to pamphleteering, literature literature as news also transgresses traditional assumptions about form and poetics. So instead of yearning to write the great canonical work, you just get the news out onto the street. Despite and even because of the disposable nature of some small presses and their products, witness publishers in this paper not publishing anymore, These presses were and are poetic and cultural engines motivating schools and movements like the first and second generation New York schools, the San Francisco Renaissance, a lot of these groupings we historically put on poets in the 20th century. Perhaps a cultural formation is as a gathering of clouds which when sufficient density is achieved precipitates in previously unpredictable ways, Ted Pearson suggests in The Grand Piano. By bringing form and the act of reading into closer proximity, small press publishing often plays a key role in this cultural formation and serves as a venue for and as an active agent in new kinds of cultural precipitation. In other words, when writers take the act of publication literally into their own hands, they create new venues, new alliances, and new writings that dovetail into available technologies. In the preface of the reissued mimeograph magazine, Zero to Nine, originally published in the late 1960s, Bernadette Mayer writes, quote, Nothing was perfect about Zero to Nine in its mimeograph form. We were trying to get far away from the idea so promulgated of the perfection of the poem with white space around it set off from other things, end quote. In this way, the technology of the mimeograph machine created unique interactions between the writer and the written world. Richard, will you hold up one of the 60s mimeograph examples? Sure. <laughs> so they were typically side stapled, and you can you know, see the, the traces of mimeograph production on the inside. And I'll talk a little bit more about them in a few minutes. Heginian writes, quote, for poetry to exist, it has to be given meaning. And for meaning to develop, there must be communities of people thinking about it. Publishing books, as I did, was a way of contributing to such a community, even a way of helping to invent it. Invention is essential to every aspect of writing. Part 2. Defining the book object, or what the hell is a chat book anyway? The Oxford English Dictionary defines a chapbook as, quote, a modern name applied by book collectors and others to specimens of the popular literature which was formerly circulated by itinerant de- dealers of chapmen, consisting chiefly of small pamphlets of popular tales, ballads, tracts, etc." cetera. Richard, will you hold up the, uh, the chap magazine? So this is an example of kind of what chapbooks were considered to be. Um, this was published at the turn of the century, but it collects ballads and popular songs and popular poems, etc., cetera, um, in ways that they would have been peddled during the Renaissance. Or as one publisher, Brandon Shimoda, describes them, quote, chapbooks are, after all, quote unquote, chapbooks in the sense that they are struggling to come to terms with their own commonalities and differences, don't you think? What the hell is a chapbook anyway? From finely letterpressed to side stapled and photocopied, the profusion of contemporary chapbook publication takes many forms. A physical description of the chapbook as a publication category tends to gloss over the forms, contradictions, and inconsistencies. Typically understood, chapbook has become a term that refers primarily to length. Chapbooks are generally shorter than full length books. For poetry, that means they range from just a few pages to upwards of 30, the most consistent page range being between 16 and 24. Their print run is usually limited, frequently between 50 and 200. Publishers, who are almost always writers themselves, tend to take advantage of the opportunities allowed by a small print run to experiment with size and format. The limited print run also confines distribution. The publisher usually sells the product directly to the reader and circulation. Finally, the economics of the enterprise are similarly impacted. Because production is usually done in-house and by hand, publishers cover only cost of raw materials and postage, which allows them to sell each chapbook for less than a full-length book, often somewhere between four and $12. As Matt Henriksen, a poet and publisher of Cannibal Books, writes, quote, you can make as much selling chapbooks as you could mowing lawns, delivering papers, or decorating cakes, I suppose, and that's not so bad. Contemporary poetry, an art form with very little overall economic value, has experienced a proliferation of chapbook and chapbook publication in the last ten years. Yet the products of this proliferation often include book objects that defy one or more of the production guidelines I've listed above. For example, the Center for the Book Arts in New York holds an annual chapbook contest. Each year it publishes a chapbook by the winner and the judge each in an edition of 100 and they're very beautiful and they're letter pressed all the way through and those chapbooks cost $35 each. New Michigan Press, a chapbook publisher in operation since 1999, keeps its chapbooks in print, and has, in the last few years, switched to out-of-house printing, perfect binding, and full-color covers. A recent release is $9, at 56 pages, though, the chapbook is practically indistinguishable in both size and form from a full-length book. Um, would you hold up the Night Yard? It's around the left somewhere. This is not New Michigan Press, it's Noemi Press, but it's an example of a chapbook that is starting to blur the distinctions between what we would consider a book book and a chapbook. So the objects categorized by poets and publishers or chapbooks as chapbooks are difficult to, f- to define by material properties or monetary value alone. Part three Historicizing chapbooks, or street literature versus art books. Sometimes poets and publishers look to historical context for chapbook descriptions and definitions. kind of coming back to the historical now. Eric Lorberer, the editor of Rain Taxi, has been giving talks on this subject discussing the early history of the chapbook as dating back to Renaissance pamphlets. He has positioned the chapbook in the context of street and popular literature tracing its decline in the 19th century and its revival by modernist and other early 20th century avant-garde movements who reconceived the composition of the chapbook audience. For, for instance, Virginia Woolf's Hogarth Press, which published an edition of Eliot's The Wasteland, did not rely on street vending to distribute the work, but instead on coterie circulation. In his article, Considering Chapbooks, A Brief History of the Little Book, Noah Eli Gordon traces a similar trajectory, also shifting the 20th century's chapbook focus away from a popular audience. He writes, quote, Intriguingly, rather than democratizing, rather than the democratizing of reading it once heralded, it is now the ease of access to the means of production that defines the chapbook's unfettering of hierarchy. Although this kind of work tends to overextend the lineage of the contemporary chapbook, which I feel owes less to a general history of street literature than does, say, paperback pulp fiction, it nonetheless emphasizes the importance of a shift in the means of production for small press publishers in the 60s and 70s. In these decades, the ease of access to the means of production become fully realized. The advent of the mimeograph machine allowed for a proliferation of book, chapbook, and other little magazine publishing from public homes. Or as um, Alice Notley will tell you, from Church Basements, where she and Ted um, Berrigan broke a number of mimeograph, mag- or mimeograph machines while making these things further the declining price of letter presses allowed other poets to utilize that technology these poetic communities tended to be geographically and specific and interactive though some of the poets traveled frequently and the obscenity trials publishers underwent in the 60s the most famous example of this is grove press probably combined with the political climate, did lend a feeling of subterfuge to, pub- to publishing and distributing books outside established publishing avenues. The comments of contemporary poets and publishers implicitly acknowledge this lineage. I love the history of the chapbook as immediate and urgent and cheap and related to the political present and agitation, Phil Cordelli says. Likewise, Gina Myers of Lame House Press states, Quote, I think that spirit, immediacy, DIY, democracy, free or cheap access to information as well as cheap access to creating a publication is central to my poetics. Implied in these statements is a desire to be a member of a political trajectory and to engage in the excitement of direct action by circumventing traditional publication routes. But another aspect of the contemporary DIY aesthetic, historically linked to political and democratic publication, is its ability to fetishize and add value to the book object. Ander Monson, the publisher of New Michigan Press, summarizes this attraction when he states, Quote, I think there's more of this DIY aesthetic starting to return to publishing as the tools and technology is more obviously within reach and as writers and readers start to get a little disillusioned with mass market publishing, a chapbook is more intimate, more of an artifact, often a a one-of-a-kind, a private experience, a limited edition. The limited production of chapbooks makes the object rare. Combined with in house production, these objects become, in the hands of some consumers, art objects. There are some examples of, of kind of chapbooks more like art objects on the table back there. One is a really beautiful painting, but each chapbook um, was sold with its own painting on the cover, so it was much more expensive, and I would think of it more like a book art object. For the poet Brandon Shimoda, the goal is less the finished chapbook product and more the creation of such an object. He comments, this is a long quote, But again, I don't think of these book objects initially or sometimes at all as chapbooks necessarily, but compelling objects that contain within them a universe, small or large, of challenging wonderment. The length of the finished objects have been determined by two things, the arc of the energy of the writing and, this is important, I think, available materials. If we had more money, no doubt we would be publishing cloth-bound hardcover volumes of 5,000 pages or more, or more likely feature-length films, or even more likely biospheres on the tongues of dead animals. Either way, it boils down to whether or not the object looks and feels good, and if it conveys something both fully itself and fully other than itself. These things, among others, trump dimensional concerns." That's the end of that long quote. Of the poets I interviewed, Shimoda was the only one who explicitly expressed a desire to produce objects of challenging wonderment that extended beyond the limitations of chapbook publishing. However, I quote him at length here to underscore the idea of the chapbook as a work of art, one motivated by desires ranging beyond the art cited practical benefits inherent to the cheap DIY production of chapbooks, and even on to the incredible biospheres on the tongues of dead animals. Four. Forms valuation, or the allure of limited temporality. The limited print run and gift distribution of these objects hint at the ways in which writers and publishers have conceived chapbook writing, chapbook audiences, and chapbook temporality. Cordelli writes, quote, I don't believe in authority, but in exchange, only in conversation. By combining author and authority, Cordelli signals a discomfort with explicit power structures and with the idea of the author as the text's sole creator. Instead, he envisions authorship as dependent on exchange and conversation. A conversation may contain extended monologues, but in order for it to remain a conversation, the speaker must at some point become the listener. The condensed temporality of chapbooks, usually attributed to their shorter length, acts as a piece of conversation between members of a community. In addition to the intentionally shortened content, limited temporality is also affected by limited press runs, which are often a practical concern. Ryan Murphy, poet and publisher of a series of one-shot chat books, which means that the the name of the press rotates with each new publication, says, Quote, for me, I work in very limited quantities because I have found it to be the limit of what I enjoy producing. Printing and sewing after 200 stops being fun at all. This is true. Plus the cost of paper, ink, toner, envelopes, postage, etc. And I tend to think of what I do as pretty selfish. I am doing it because I love the work and I get to work with writers I admire. End quote. However, as Murphy does, most publishers see their work as an opportunity and the shortened temporality of the chapbook as not only necessary but advantageous. Many terms encompass this temporality or what I've been referring to as limited temporality. Um, You could also think about it as provisionality, expediency, ephemerality, immediacy, some of which were used in the above description of historical context, DIY, and exchange. However, it's worth repeating that poets and publishers conceive of this limited temporality as embedded in the form itself. Henriksen writes, With chapbooks, you get a feel in a single sitting of what your peers are up to, a sentiment that poet and publisher Joshua Marie Wilkinson echoes when he says, quote, I still love the idea of a book, booklet, pamphlet, chapbook that you can read in a single sitting. Chapbooks just aren't the hassle of bookbooks. The reading experience mirrors the abbreviated form. And the awareness of time during the reading of a chapbook is typically a heightened one. It's less possible, for instance, to say to a friend, I just got lost in that book. And when the chat book is especially short, just a few pages, the reader is also aware of how the slim reading time contrasts with the effort gone into producing the singular object. Shimoda interrogates this idea of temporal heightened awareness when he writes, quote, chapbooks do bear a greater degree of expediency. I go back and forth on how chapbooks have a hand in both heightened and diminished states of attention, and I suppose it all returns to the pressure put upon the work within the chapbook. For Shimoda, the opportunities allowed by chapbook publishing are sometimes overabundant, i.e. there are too many publishers publishing. And the overproduction of the form risks a potential downfall or loss of quality. In his formulation, the content of the work is also key in providing a successful temporalized experience in which expediency is a positive force. In other words, the the, the form of the chapbook doesn't just lead to sloppy work. The poet Eric Bells reports I like writing into the space of chapbooks because they give more space to extend a piece than most magazine publications, and because in the limited print runs and distributions, there is a sense that they are still a provisional form. So kind of a work in progress. While most poets are enthusiastic about the aforementioned descriptors of immediacy and expediency, some poets are reticent to embrace this temporality as Baus does in terms of provisionality or ephemerality. Again, we return to this tension between street literature and DIY versus art books that are meant to be placed in a museum. Kate Greenstreet, also a poet, responds, quote, I don't see chapbooks as necessarily provisional, They are more temporary, just because they tend to go out of print faster than books published by bigger presses. They're more likely to have a smaller readership for the same reason, fewer copies. Also, chapbooks can be collected to form a longer manuscript. Those are some of the ways they could be considered provisional. But they can be an end in themselves as well. I turned my first manuscript into a chapbook instead of the other way around. The question of whether poets are content with chapbook publication as an end in itself, as opposed to a means toward, as opposed to a means toward publishing a full-length book, remains an unsolved tension. Mary can talk to you firsthand about this. Um, I published her chapbook um, a few years ago, and it's now she tells me not in her full-length book anymore, which is totally different. On one hand, the popularity of the form has led to its growing acceptance as a valid mode of publication. On the other hand, this popularity risks poets valuing it only as a step in the process of publishing that long, often long-desired first book. So it becomes part of the kind of codified route of publication. You publish poems in magazines, then you publish a chapbook, then you publish a full-length book. forms, effects, or the question of the emergence of particular kinds of authorial subjects. How, if at all, does the form influence the content of chapbooks and of later full-length publications? Poets and publishers tend to have very specific ways of articulating how the form has or has not influenced their own poetic practice. The articulation tends to be positive. Foremost on the minds of many poets and publishers is the re-emergence of the lyric sequence. I write re-emergence, although the sequence has maintained varying degrees of importance for poets throughout the 20th century. However, the chapbook seems to be a form especially well-suited to the lyric sequence, which risks being too long for publication in magazines and journals. Eric Elshane says, quote, I think that the proliferation of small chapbook presses makes the idea of a sequence just that much more accessible to poets. Imagine a land in which painters were usually given only ceilings to paint, and then there came to be a few local canvas makers who disseminated 4 by 4 canvases for painters to paint on. Those new on-canvas painters' conceptions of how to create a unified series of images would change and the painting of series of independent but related paintings would be encouraged. The professional legitimacy of chapbook publication has given poets a new smaller lens through which to design a sequence of handheld poems over which they have total aesthetic control, end quote. Other poets and publishers agree that both the legitimization of chapbook publication and the form itself have created opportunities to work within the lyric sequence. Tom Hummel, poet and former publisher of Handheld Editions, writes, I would say that the proliferation of chapbooks and chapbook presses in the world has provided a kind of liberation, or at least a perspective on potential liberation for poets who write in sequences. But how much of this poets adopte- is poets adopting a form because of its increased popularity? Murphy voices an opinion subtly expressed by several respondents when he writes, quote, but I think that the rise of chapbook publishing, at least its increased relevance in my admittedly limited field of vision, had drawn more attention to the sequence. It just strikes me as a mode of writing that a lot of poets adopt as it starts to become perceived as timely and relevant, or more, more diplomatically, the sequence becomes more central to the conversation that poets are having with each other, end quote. So this is a kind of a chicken-and-an-egg question. Do poets begin to write more sequences because they can publish them, or are they writing more sequences that can then have this new form that they can be exhibited in? And not all poets and publishers are willing to de-emphasize the vitality of chapbooks composed of individual poems in favor of those composed of sequences. So you poets out there, you you can still write chapbook manuscripts that are composed of discrete poems. Although Myers believes that the length of the chapbook lends itself to a lyric sequence, she confesses that the limited page range has made it easier to organize her poems, whether they are part of a sequence or a collection. She writes, so chapbooks can almost serve as a demo or a mixtape, emphasizing the idea of poems as discrete units like songs, but still organized under some general idea or theme." It's a lot easier to organize 20 poets into a coherent manuscript or 20 poets. Oh my goodness, 20 poems into a coherent manuscript than 50. Henriksen asserts, I don't think that lyric sequence is as important as the delivery of poetry through a smaller, more quickly produced medium. A chapbook that consists of a lyric sequence gives the reader an intimate but succinct experience with the poet's work, but a chapbook of separate poems does the same thing. The impression that the popularity of the sequence subsequently alters the content of a poet's first book may also be a temporary result of the chapbook's popularity, but it may also be a genuine byproduct of the validity of chapbook publishing. Certainly several members of the community identify a shifting conception of the first book, which Hummel articulates when he writes, in the current moment a shift has been placed predominantly on the side of the chapbook project, whether it be constructed via individual sequences or a book-length sequence, showing a distinct resemblance to, book, to the book-length poem, but skirting classification as such by means of periodic disruption or sectioning, end quote. When I asked poets and publishers about the lyric sequence, respondents sometimes sent back lists of recent first books which appear to be entirely comprised of chapbook-sized sequences. It is becoming increasingly common to open a book to an acknowledgements page and see listed there not only individual journals, but also chapbook presses. To return to Elstein's analogy about printing in canvases, Inherent in the illustration of painters switching from ceilings to canvases is not only the idea of sequentiality, but also the very practical notion of material size and space. Many poets find that because they cannot necessarily predict the subsequent size and layout of the chapbook manuscript, the resulting experience is one of liberation from the standard 8.5 by 11 rectangle. In the case of one of Green Street's chapbooks, she predetermined page size. The shape and size of the book allowed me to place small blocks of words on one page after another. The writing was made for the shape of the page. Other poets use the idea of the chapbook form to break from the habit of writing a lyric poem that fits onto a single page. Summer Browning half jokes, before I wrote my first chapbook I was habitually tied to page length poems, so thanks chapbooks. Shimoda summarizes the liberating effects of a Reconception of material options when he says This is an exciting possibility for writers who don't Necessarily differentiate or measure a hierarchy Of projects based on page length but rather On the space and breadth required to express Imminent content. In this sense checkbooks are Great allowances and put the focus back on writing As opposed to the administrative haggling over product And production. End quote. Despite the tendency of chapbooks to draw attention to their material qualities, from the point of view of many poets, the loosening of formal structures allows them both the freedom to experiment with form and the space to put the focus back on writing. Last part. Community, or a way to celebrate, deepen, and constitute what we do off the grid. I've been using the word community because it is the term most poets and publishers ascribe to the producers and consumers in the contemporary chapbook scene. But similar to the discussion of temporality, there are a number of different terms lurking behind the word community, coterie, audience, public, and intimacy that coexist uneasily with each other. Traditional associations suggested by the word community in other words, a group of people linked by geography or culture are not necessarily applicable to the chapbook community. Some aspects, aspects of chapbook production are regional in that publishers and readers tend to have better access to chapbooks distributed at readings they can attend. And some publishers like Belladonna in New York produce broad size and chat chapbooks specifically to commemorate readings. Writers also sometimes pair up to travel on reading tours, which they fund themselves and in which they sell chapbooks and attempt to expand their audiences. Achima argues that this kind of distribution reinforces the intimacy of chapbooks. She writes, word about the chatbook travels from the local to outlying communities. A full-length book can be everywhere at once. The exchange that happens in getting chapbooks to readers is intimate. There is a directness. Murphy has sought out a different distribution. He works purely in a gift economy, sending out the chapbooks he publishes to a constantly growing and mutating list of addressees who he either admires or who have expressed interest in the work. Um, Alice Notley did this when she started publishing the magazine Chicago in the 60s, which is back on the desk. She just sent out copies to poets she adored, hoping that they would kind of then realize who she was and maybe even send work. Yet almost all publishers also sell books now online and through PayPal. While some publishers mail chapbooks to independent bookstores, the internet has become the most common mode of chapbook distribution, alighting the distinctions between publisher, distributor, and bookseller. MC Highland, poet and publisher of Double Cross Press, sees this distribution as a function of the larger impact of the internet on culture. Quote, I think that the recent shift toward the chapbook as a form with a genuine value has a lot to do with the way the internet has emerged has encouraged both micropress publishing and a conscious wrestling with how to register a shifting and decentered subjectivity. Henriksen echoes her articulation of a generational gap when he writes, quote, it's generational too, I think poets under 40 or poets of the online generation have grasped the possibilities of finding readerships through chapbooks much more ret- readily than established poets. Although I believe the connection between age and internet distribution is not so terribly rigid, It is true that emerging poets and publishers who often have met personally at conferences or at readings are creating a network of these otherwise largely invisible publications. On their blogs and on Facebook, presses often link to other presses they know or admire. They send out emails announcing their latest publications. There is no central list of publishers, partly because they appear and disappear all the time, which makes it difficult to quantify the magnitude of their presence, but there are some sites that invite publishers to join and list chat books in a kind of central location. One could argue, as a few poets and publishers do, that the ease of following links to new chat publishers once one knows where to look, democratizes distribution and disintegrates any perception of the community as coterie, defined by the Oxford English Dictionary as, a set, a set associated by certain exclusive interests, pursuits, or aims, a clique. As Greenstreet says, I have found a kind of community in poetry but I'm not part of a coterie and my readers seem to be disparate and far, far-flung and surprising. This might be true for Green Street, but whether it's true for others depends on several factors. First, it is difficult to ignore the fact that chapbook audiences, while sometimes extending to a more general readership, are primarily composed of chapbook poets and publishers. Second, as Highland asks, quote, what, what exactly is the avant-garde if not the bourgeois? Could, should we describe avant-garde activity as activity by and for the rich in cultural capital? Or, in the terms used here, internet distribution does exclude a large section of the population that has limited internet access. And third, it's similarly difficult to discern how chapbook audiences pattern their consumption habits. A new press publishing Work by a well-known poet is with some small amount of publicity bound to reach and sell chapbooks to readers of that poet. But how many consumers are buying chapbooks only by poets they know, and how many are buying chapbooks produced by publishers and presses they know? In her book, Reluctant Capitalists, the writer Laura J. Miller illustrates how both independent and chain booksellers alike have turned to the strategy of branding to continue selling books. This is precisely the strategy Murphy eschews with his one-shot chat books. He writes, I never really wanted to establish a specific press name, though my thoughts on that are always in flux as well. It didn't really seem like I could become any kind of real brand. But more often, presses seem to embrace branding, choosing memorable press names, designing logos, and even producing chapbooks or sets of chapbooks that share design elements and formats. You can see some examples on the, the back table. It is worth, sorry, I'm lost. No, I'm not. It is worth noting that Murphy and some others do not balk at the idea of being a member of a coterie. Murphy writes, because of my methodology and temperament, I would put myself squarely in the coterie, which honestly is a fine place to be. Some other poets re-envision distribution to a select audience temporally. Eric Bau says, quote, I think poetry gets dispersed through multiple overlapping, sometimes very indirect channels and often over a long span of time. I found that what might start in the context of a small community of readers and editors often finds its way into larger readerships. And despite the fact that poets and publishers disagree about the exclusivity of their actual and intended audiences, all nonetheless share, articulate the effects of membership in such a community positively. Participation in such a community may in fact influence poetic practice more than the actual form of the chapbook does. Highland confesses, quote, I think that the engagement with chapbook, with poetry as a chapbook publisher has affected my poetics largely in the sense of community it's created for me. I feel a sense of a shared enterprise, of a communal remaking of language to reflect the particular consciousness of our generation. This perception of shared conversation helps poets and publishers feel less isolated when producing an art form that is often solitary in production. A vital component to this community is the fact that texts intended for public consumption are usually produced in the private sphere of a publisher's home. Some publishers even use their homes as venues for readings. This contributes to a conceptualization of the community as intimate and personal, a conceptualization that is further supported by the ease of access provided by Facebook and other online venues to both personal profiles and press pages. Joshua Marie Wilkinson summarizes both the negative byproducts of such an intimate community, though he also ultimately celebrates its possibilities. He writes, I love the community of chapbook readers, makers, printers, publishers, designers. I like that there's a lot, but as with anything, there's a lot of hackneyed self-promotion, Facebook bullshit, and all that seems to distract from the work as it is. My community, my friends and the folks whose work I respect of my own generation, has been formed in part by the chapbook swell. Chapbooks have a small audience, and I think that's good. Like any small movement, there's any number of things that murk it up and distract from what's great about it. This is a way to celebrate, deepen, and constitute what we do as poets, which is effectively off the grid. Even the mainstream presses are off the grid, but chapbooks are differently. I think that's right. At its core, chapbook publication's impact is felt not only through the book objects it produces, but also through the sense of community it engenders in poets. It doesn't really exist in an antagonistic relationship with the larger community of poetry publication or with its own members. It produces beautiful and intimate objects as celebration. You can see those objects on the table over there. Thank you.